What's the problem? Well, we gated to a planet. It's being sucked up by a black hole. Very bad. Very dangerous. Why is that? Things tend to get sucked in. Welcome back to Stargate Weekly. I'm Thad Haight. And I'm Stuart Hollis. This week, we're talking about Season 2, Episode 16, A Matter of Time. I had a bad joke, like on the tip of my tongue. It'll come to me, eventually. It's just a... Ah. That was subtle. Went right over my head. Yeah, like broken glass. This episode originally aired... On December 9th, 1998. According to TV Guide, it it originally aired on the 29th of January, 1999. Well, TV Guide or the Stargate Wiki are... Neither one's probably wrong. They're probably different places or something. Well, let's see who has the better synopsis. TV Guide, probably. The lives of the team are endangered after a rescue effort goes awry, and O'Neill's former colleague is sent to help them. That's a pretty... That's that's like 20th century vague booking right there. Yeah, I mean, especially the first the first clause where it's like, things go awry. Thank you. You've just described 84% of Stargate episodes. So the Stargate wiki says, SG-10 is trapped on a planet that falls victim to a newly formed black hole. While gating to retrieve them, the gate cannot shut down, and the effects of the black hole are being translated into Stargate Command by the Stargate. The distortion could put Earth at jeopardy at being sucked into the black hole through the Stargate. Meanwhile, O'Neill's former colleague is sent to help them. <laughs> yeah, that part's not even mentioned. Right. Uh, um... The usual complaints about the Stargate Wiki synopsis apply. <laughs> yes, it's... <laughs> yeah. Boy, it's... Like I was there. At least it mentions the black hole. That's true. How about them black hole graphics, though? Mm. The original story idea for this episode was by Misha Roshovich, uh, who has never written for Stargate again and only provided, and her only other credit on IMDb was providing the story idea for an episode of The Dead Zone. That was the one with Anthony Michael Hall on USA, right? Yes, it had Anthony Michael Hall. It also had Nicole DeBoer on it. Oh, that name is very familiar. Esri Dax on Deep Space Nine. Ah, yes. She was also in an episode of Stargate Atlantis. That's why I recognize her. I watched Dead Zone before I watched... Um, I know which episode of Atlantis you're thinking of. Uh, she mm-hmm. was on. Uh, I watched Dead Zone before I ever saw DS9. So when Ezri Dax joined the the cast of characters, like that explains why I was like, "Boy, I've seen her before." 
Yeah, I have never seen this show. I don't even know if I heard about this show until just now. Right. You've seen Monk, though, right? Yeah. Yeah, then you've seen every episode of Dead Zone. So it's like a USA show, then. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's like Monk, except he talks to dead people. Mm. And apparently David Ogden Steers was in it, too. Yes! It's also on Sliders. And on Starkid Atlantis. Yes. And Star Trek The Next Generation. Well, I mean, of course. It's David Ogden Steers. He's been in everything. Yeah. His most famous role was probably MASH, but this is not the David Ogden Steers weekly show, so... No, no, it's not. Because uh, he, he was not in this episode. No. Uh, but this episode was written for TV by Brad Wright, who, mm-hmm. well, we probably don't need to go into him. We've talked about him already. He's, I've heard of him. Yeah. One of the creators of the show and continued to be executive producer throughout the entire run. Uh, and it was directed by Jimmy Kaufman, who also directed Tin Man in season one and a whole bunch of TV shows that I've never heard of. Okay. Nice. Fun facts. Yeah. So anyway, those black hole graphics. Yes. You know what it made me think of? It made me think of Encarta. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And what else made me think of it in Carta and really take me back to that time was once they sped up the GDO signal on the computer and we heard the dial-up tone. Yes. So I have several issues with the science on this here. Go on. Okay. So if time is running much more slowly on the other side of the wormhole... How were they able to get, first off, how how was the probe's camera able to move up immediately? I was wondering about that. Secondly, how were they able to send a command to the probe that it could understand in the first place? Mm-hmm. And thirdly, we al- they already pointed out that the probe was sending a digital signal to them. How were they able to decode that signal at all? They had already had experience decoding the GDO, so and she had, she had told them to one do the like the red shifting, or I guess it would be blue shifting if it was all red shift. It doesn't matter. She had already told them to do the the color shifting on the video feed, and they had previously had to do the time shifting on the GDO signal. So that is the one that I'll give them. I still feel like it's not something that they would have been able to read as a digital signal. No, no, you're probably right. If it was an analog signal, yes, you could just change how it reads it. Right. Do you think it was transmitting at 24 or 30 frames per second? Like, do you think it was supposed to be transmitting at 24 or 34 frames per second? It might very well have been supposed to be transmitting at 60. You think? Yeah. Hmm. Camcorder video in the 90s could do 60 hertz. But could data transmission handle 60 hertz? Well, we don't know what kind of di- transmission it was using, so eh. I have no idea. Well, I did the math for 24 frames per second. Okay. Uh, seven. It was moving at 1 785th of normal time. Okay. It's very slow. Yeah, so since it's a digital signal, we, we really don't know what kind of signal it was using to transmit that. Uh, if it had been analog, yes, it could absolutely do 60 hertz, because terrestrial television was 60 mm-hmm. hertz. Uh, but you can do 60 hertz. I'm thinking digital television today. It may not be exactly the same signal, uh, but you can do 60 hertz on that, and it probably wasn't that high of a resolution. It didn't look like that high of a resolution. Yeah, fair enough. But, yeah, there's no way of knowing for sure how many frames per second it was supposed to say show. 
But yeah, I I I have some trouble with that. I also because it's so slow that they're not even SG10 doesn't even appear to be moving. So even if they were able to send the command to the probe to raise its camera, it would have taken a very, very, very long time to happen. Because I doubt in real time that probe's camera moves instantaneously. Right, yeah. I yeah, I, uh, I, I also had considered the, the, the camera speed thing. Of, like, of moving the camera, I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, by the way. <laughs> when they're dialing the planet, they did not dial Abydos. Neat. They dialed Chulak. That's neat. And that makes me wonder, <laughs> jumping straight, like, right to the very, very end of the episode. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they detonate the shape charge to cause the wormhole to jump. Mm-hmm. Now, currently, we have the wormhole connecting from Earth to planet A. They're going to cause the wormhole to jump so that Earth is connected to planet B. What happens to planet A? Does its connection also jump to another Stargate? I don't think so, because that would, that would involve the spontaneous creation of a second wormhole. Okay. I wasn't sure if maybe, like, the worm... Like, if the wormhole splits, for example. But my thought is, it would feel... It would seem to me that if there's an explosion by the gate that causes the wormhole to jump, it would yeah. cause the wormhole to jump away from the gate that's having the explosion. So instead of the Earth gate ha- getting a locked to another planet, it would cause the wormhole to lock to another planet and the Earth gate to shut down. Is- right, and that other planet gets et by a black hole. Right, that's how I would have assumed this would work. Yeah, that was my concern, was that it... I was thinking, like, the wormhole was splitting. Mm. Uh, and so now another planet is gonna get consumed by the black hole? Well, we know that that doesn't actually happen. What? Which part? We know that it doesn't go to another planet, because since that keeps the gate open indefinitely, they would not have been able to dial it in a few seasons when they need to blow up a sun. Spoilers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I'm wondering if... My own comments about the science. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if... Okay, so the the planet that SG-10 was on, we are told, had a binary star. Yes. And I guess that one of them got somehow out of whack on its orbit? Or something. Or, yeah, because... I'm not an astrophysicist. Uh-huh. I'm not even like Amanda Tapping, and I don't play one on TV. <laughs> but I would have assumed, and I could be wrong, uh, and if there are any astrophysicists in our audience, send us an email, stargateweekly at gmail.com. Yeah. Uh, we like to have things explained at us by subject matter experts. Yeah, we have a biologist who listens, so we might actually have an astrophysicist who listens. Indeed. I would have assumed that in a binary star system, or trinary, um, I think those exist. Um, they do. I, it's a, you know, it's a big universe. I bet quaternary and... Quintinary? Thank you. Uh, and, heck, you know, dodecadenary. Like That's 20 stars. pushing it. Hey, man. Anyway... I would assume that the stars would be approximately the same age, 
So the odds of like of one of them suddenly collapsing in on itself because of age is less likely. So I guess somehow its orbit got thrown out of whack by other stellar reasons uh, and started pulling in matter from the other star until it then collapsed. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it's something that would happen, but it did. Uh, yeah, but then again, it could also be, you know, because there's the whole thing about the black hole pulling in stuff, and I don't know enough about how black holes work. What I do know is that when a star becomes a black hole, its mass doesn't magically go up. It does, like, it's, like, things will start falling into it, which will cause its mass to increase and its gravity to increase, but it's not mm-hmm. going to magically... Like, if our sun got replaced by a black hole, we wouldn't even know for the first eight minutes. And then even like even once the lights go out... Hey, who turned out the lights? I am pretty sure I've read that Earth wouldn't fall or get pulled into the center of the solar system. Right. Or yeah. rather, the center of the holar system. Mm, nice. Thank you. Yeah, the, it, it doesn't quite seem plausible to me, but that's okay. It's Stargate, not a science lesson. And right. all in all, this is a pretty good episode. Yes. Yeah, no, I uh, I enjoyed it a lot. We're on a pretty good roll lately mm-hmm. with, uh, with solid episodes. Um, we get uh, our first appearance of Major Davis in this episode. Yes. Love Major Davis. Uh, Cromwell... I'm okay that we're never going to see him again. Why did we need that backstory? Especially because, no, Jack is correct. They're completely different situations. Yes. Because the whole reason why the SGC is in this predicament is because they tried to rescue SG-10. So, speaking of black holes. Were we? We were. Nice. The German name for this episode is The Black Hole. A little on the nose, don't you think? Uh... Not quite as on the nose as the Italian name, which is State of High Gravity. Hmm. But I think the Hungarians win this week with a seemingly unending moment. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah, that's nice. Also, I think this is the first episode in which the embarkation room is referred to as the gate room. Ah, nice. So did you notice that we had some more stock footage of planes? I did, yes. You want another... Like a uh, nice replacement word for stock is. Hmm. Plane. Some plain planes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some some plain plane footage. The planes in Spain fall. Mainly in the plane. Yes. Yes. Let me explain this to you. (laughs) So something that I've picked up on in our... That I don't know if I ever did in our previous, in my previous rewatches, but in this rewatch of the series, I've definitely noticed that Jack has a very distinctive way of saying, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah? He's like, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Like the inflection is different. Oh. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, getting back to talking about Cromwell, I did mm-hmm. like when we first meet him and it's, you know, what do you mean by funky? Hmm. But then, you know, once he runs into old Doc Frazier and he's super duper intense and pointing a gun at her, I'm like, well, I, I like this guy less now. Well, that's well, Cromwell is what made me think of the oh yeah thing, because when uh, Frazier asks if they know each other, Jack says, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. 
An- another good Jackism was later when it was when uh, Hammond had come back from one of his trips and is telling them they're going to you know blow up the mountain and Jack's just like sweet yes Jack has seen it all he's very lackadaisical well all that time spent in the Iraqi prison will do that to you it was only four months oh only what it's not like it was five months <clears throat> I suppose all right so now I'm just wondering. Are there any Middle Eastern countries that Jack has not been stranded in? Ooh, good question. Gutter? Mm. We haven't heard that he has, but that doesn't mean he hasn't. Probably not the UAE. Okay, that's true. He's almost certainly been stranded in Jordan, I bet. Probably. We know for a fact Iran and Iraq. We've heard that this season. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if Jack has ever been in a Turkish prison. Probably. Yeah. In fact, I do recall... He's, when he's asked if he'd been in a prison in an earlier episode, he says, oh, yeah. <laughs> Good recall. Yeah. Well, that was one of the instances that I remembered. It's like, oh, he has that same inflection every time, too. So at a certain point, Lieutenant, I'm um, not Walter, was mm-hmm. waving a wand around at the Stargate to measure the gravity. And he says that he's measuring seven G's at the iris. Right, and yet he's standing normally. Right, he's standing like a foot away from the iris. So, I mean, mean, at seven G's, that wand is now, and, well, his fingers and his arm, like, everything is going to be seven times heavier. Right, and pulling in a different direction. Right, it will, in fact, be pulling right towards the Stargate, but... And it yes, and it would be a seven seven times stronger than the pull of him to the ground. So there's no way he's just stand, nonchalantly standing on the ground a foot away from the gate, unless the gravity strength falls off really fast. Yeah, yeah one G for every two inches. <laughs> so yeah, there that was a little unlikely. But I mean, we do later see that obviously the gravity is doing that when they're rappelling down to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which was. So I guess that they filmed them against a green screen backing and then overlaid it atop regular footage. I would imagine, yeah. Yeah. And the green screen is super duper obvious once the iris gets ripped away and we're looking at the Stargate toilet in full flush. So I was a little annoyed about the Stargate toilet in full flush uh, okay. with the the fact that the you, the wormhole was like actually protruding out the back of the gate because i'm like well that doesn't actually make sense because there wouldn't be any gravity behind the gate uh but uh the stargate wiki reminded me that it did that in the movie so never mind yes it does do that in the movie um yeah they had a much more elaborate activation flush sequence in the movie yeah i don't think they reused the movie footage for in this no i don't think so no. But it it wouldn't make sense to me at least. I, I get the the vortex that's swirling. That mm-hmm. makes I can understand that concept. But it would seem to be that it the force should stop when it hits the event horizon. There shouldn't be carryover behind it. If anything, there should be force going towards that. But because there certainly wouldn't be anything behind the gate that would be pulling things towards it. Unless it's simply a representation of the deformation of of the event horizon. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't give it much thought beyond, boy, these graphics didn't did not particularly hold up. 
Neither did the glass breaking. No, but how about Chekhov's shard of glass on the rope? Ah. Well, it was incredibly obvious, but yes. Yeah, no, super duper obvious. Both times that glass broke and then hit the iris, it then disappears after it hits the iris. I noticed that the iris looked different after that happened. I assumed that the glass was pulverized and effectively turned into very, very small little bits or sand-like substance at the iris upon impact. I suppose that's possible, and that may have contributed to the iris destructing itself later. Well, that and, you know, all that gravity. Yeah, and the plot calling for it. And, yes, the plot calling for it. But, hey, did you notice the callback to spirits? Yes, I did. Yeah, well, they're getting the trinium-laced iris. Yeah. So, apparently, they did go back and negotiate at one at some point. No, well, of course. I don't think they're going to mention Trinium much more. I don't. Rem- I I didn't remember that they mentioned it in this episode. So maybe they do. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe later if they ever build like spaceships or something, hmm. they'll say that with a Trinium reinforced hull or like, mm. you know, like Trinium titanium alloy. It, it, there's a real opportunity for them to like sprinkled in their own little bit of uh, Star Trekies. Uh, techno babble, mm. you know, like what the heck is dilithium anyway? But it seems to solve some of their problems. Well, but I mean, I guess they already do that with Naquita. Two of them. Yeah, I guess they do already do that with Naquita and then Dequadria. So, and never mind. S- well, I think it's it's funny that you you say that uh, you were saying a trinium titanium alloy because <laughs> tritanium is a thing that exists in Star Trek. Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The Enterprise E is largely made of it. Yeah, the yeah the bulkheads are actually made out of titanium. Yeah, not the windows though; those are force fields. Yes, well, not every window is a force field. Really? Yeah. Why? Why not? What, happen- what happens if the power fails? Electromagnetic shutters automatically seal. Well, according to the technical specifications, that scene in first po- contact is apocryphal. <laughs> Even though it's on screen, because according to the technical specifications, they should—they actually would be transparent aluminum. Hmm. 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 I will accept either answer, but not both. Mm. And since the movie showed us force fields, the answer is force fields. All right. Yeah. Oh. It's not like Star Trek is ever inconsistent or anything. No, no, definitely not. So when Sam gets topside, mm-hmm. I was really hoping that we were going to see the beginning of a math montage. Yes. I was too. And instead, no, we just get her staring at the whiteboard and like refusing a donut. I was also kind of hoping that she would have like a magical math moment staring at the donut. Did you notice that one of the people on SG-10 was played by Ashton the Ashrak? No, I did not. The guy who took over John Adams. Right. You're not John Adams. <laughs> yes. Uh. I didn't either, but... Okay, okay. I thought it was some interesting trivia. That is. No, that's that's solid trivia. Also, the Stargate wiki has some trivia that's totally not accurate, too. Okay, lay it on me. It claims this is the second episode after politics in which SG-1 is seen not to travel through the Stargate, but I am fairly certain they never travel through the gate in The Enemy Within, unless you count the top of Kowalski's head. <laughs> Wait, hold on. No, no, no. Enemy Within... No, they're, no, they're saying the only second time since politics is the trivia. No. Right? 
I believe what they're no, saying oh, is oh, politics oh, this is, the is, second the, time. is the first time, and then this is the second time. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't think they ever traveled to, like, step through the gate in Enemy Within, so. Hey, where was Daniel? Oh, never mind. Where was Michael Shanks? I guess he had something to do. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Uh, they, the Enemy Within ends with them traveling through the gate on their first mission. Ah. So, yeah. Uh, this is only the this and politics are the only two episodes so far in which SG One does not travel through the Stargate. Hmm. So speaking of traveling through the Stargate, mm-hmm. when they cause it to jump, they tell us that you know the explosion mostly worked. Whatever Sam's phraseology was, the majority of the blast energy went right where it was supposed to. The gate jumped to P three X. I'm making this up. Mm-hmm. How did, you know, and then they just turned it off. Well, how did they know what the other end of the gate was? Does the computer report that back? I think it must. The same way the computer also can tell them when a dev- when something has finished traveling through the wormhole. That has always confused me. Yeah. I guess in the same way that the computer can tell them who's dialing the gate before the gate <laughs> dials. <laughs> yes. Yes, there is that. So this is also the first time that we in this reality learn nice. that there's a time limit on the gate. We don't learn what the limit is. No. But this is the first time that it actually gets dropped. They talk about the they actually talk about it in um there but for the grace of God, but that was an alternate reality. Right. Yeah. Very baseball announcer of you. Mm. Quite. But yeah, they, they we don't find out what it is, but Carter knows what it is because they just passed it and it didn't shut down. Yeah. Speaking of people knowing what things are, mm-hmm. Jack was the one who immediately spotted it, you know, called it out that it was a black hole. Yeah. Well, because he's an astronomer. Right. Yeah, yeah. We keep getting like little glimpses of him being an astronomy buff. Yeah. It, that goes away in a f- few seasons. Yeah. I don't recall the episode, but I know for a fact there's an episode where he asked Carter some really basic astronomy questions, and I'm just like, Jack, you know this stuff. Does he prelude it by saying, okay, listen, I know you've explained this before. <laughs> that was amusing. Yes. And I did like when Carter explained what's going on, and Cromwell says to Jack, don't even try to pretend you understood what she said. Yeah, I wasn't crazy about... A little bit later, when Cromwell is like, oh, wow, she's really way smarter than we are. Because what she had just said, which was, no, we can't detonate remotely, it has to be a certain distance from the iris, is like, the least, like, this is me demonstrating how much smarter than you I am thing she had said all episode. Yeah. Like, Siler, this is the one where he gets zapped, by the way. Well. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Ooh, like, we, should, we should have a Siler gets injured counter going. We probably should have started this a while ago. But yeah, this, this actually may have been one of the... This, this is actually probably one of the first... One of the first, yeah. Yeah, big instances where it's like super obvious that Siler gets zapped by something. Yeah. Or, you know, clobbered or whatever. Um, But, I mean, Siler could have been the one to say, no, 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 we can't, we can't detonate remotely because, you know... We have to get it a certain distance away. Like, mm-hmm. Teal could have told him that. Yeah. Yeah, it's hardly something super technical. The stuff before was better. Uh, yeah, but they weren't around for the 
you know, don't call it a math montage. That's true. I liked I liked how Teal's, you know, a couple words of incur or of agreement or continuing the conversation there. He, you know, he would just say "I see" or mm-hmm. stuff like that. It's like, yeah, nice Teal. Yeah, just letting Carter do her thing. Right, like in the same way that they sent him into the gate room to help Siler move the big bolt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's just gonna help uh, Carter math her way through the problem. Yeah. Now, uh, it is sort of sad that SG-10 just gets abandoned, because we know, at least at this point, they're not dead, but there's nothing we can do about it. Yeah, and... they, Man, like... I, I guess with... In the future, when she reopens the gate to that planet... It is I destroyed. Guess... Okay. Yeah. And, yes, when they... When she... Spoilers, blows up the sun. Right. The, the gate's in space when she opens it. Okay. But, interestingly, I as we've talked in earlier episodes, I have not read any of the Stargate novels. But, there are two books. There's a two-book series. I'm not sure why it was a two-book series. But anyway, about uh, SG-1's adventures in rescuing SG-10 using a ship and an anti-gravity shield. Ah, interesting. Yes. It could be interesting, yeah. Hmm. So what did you think of Jack's admonishment of Carter? She was getting kind of caught up in the geeky science of being able to observe a black hole. Honestly, I'm the I'm with Carter on this one. I realize, yes, the, it is a terrible thing that the people are going to die. But... They're going to die anyway. Whether we watch it or not, we might as well get some benefit out of this. Yes, but Jack's admonishment was thoroughly in character. Yes. Oh, so very that's much why for I like Jack. It. Yes, yeah. I agree with that. But I felt, I feel like Hammond should have, I mean, they had, Hammond had to say shut it down so that we could learn that they can't shut it down. Mm-hmm. But yeah, right. I feel like Hammond should have overruled Jack and gone with Sam on that one. No, I I think you're right. I think that, well, yeah, I have to wonder, would any leader rush? Rush would tell them to leave the gate open. Yes. But I don't think any other leader of a Stargate command or expedition would. Well. Like, no, like none of the ones that we spend any time with. Yeah, and I don't even think Atlantis leader Sam would. No, partly because Atlantis, you know, Sam leading Atlantis is 10 years in the future from this point. Yeah. And so she's got 10 more years of experience and and whatnot. Now she's in command of all of these people and responsible for them and has already had the experience of opening a gate to a black hole. I can uh, absolutely see Rodney making the argument that Sam made in this episode, though. Oh, absolutely. I can almost sort of see uh, Raddick backing him up, but yeah. but Weir would shut them down immediately. Yes, she would. But yeah, Rush wouldn't even think twice about it. Yeah. I wonder if the Atlantis force field would do better protecting against the... It wouldn't do worse. That's true. It probably I... wouldn't fail. Yeah. I thought that the gate had safeguard mechanisms to prevent 
people from dialing in to imminent doom. You'd think so, wouldn't you? Well, no, I, I could have swore that came up at some point. It does, well, not for the black hole, but it does about um, them going... They, in a later episode, they take their... Their wormhole goes right through a sun, which messes it up and causes yeah. problems. And that wouldn't have happened in the real gate system. It only happened because of their fake DHD. Right. Which, the number of times that happens makes me really annoyed that they don't go to one of these primordial worlds and just grab the <laughs> DHD. Or kept it from the second gate. Well, future knowledge, we find out later that the second gate DHD dies very very quickly. I mean, that's just a plot device so they can keep using the stupid Stargate computer. And Walter isn't relegated to just, you know, punching in the buttons and pressing the big red one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The gate control one would become a whole lot more sparse if it's just the DHD up there and then, like, some monitors for feedback from the MALP. Act, yeah, well, the they used that as a plot device to explain that the gate in Antarctica was considerably older than the other gates. Well, yeah. Yeah, that's that's why they brought that up. But anyway. But the Russians have the DHD from Germany, so once we learn that... <laughs> again, future knowledge. So the final thing that I really want to talk about is when we get towards the end of the episode and they're they're heading down there with the shape charge. Mm -hmm. When Teal'c arrives... You got better quick. It has, in fact, been several days. Mm -hmm. We cut to topside where Lieutenant Omnot Walter is talking with Hammond. Do you think they're going to succeed? Well, we'll find out sometime tomorrow. I have to wonder how much the time dilation has spread and if it's starting to... How far? Is... Oh yeah, that's yeah, a very good like, point. Like, how far is Colorado Springs from the mountain? Is anyone there wondering why their coffee is taking longer than usual to to make it to them? Like, because it would be small by that point. Yeah, that that's a good point. I don't know. Yeah, would something like that? So, I know that with uh, atomic clocks. They have to be precisely calibrated for the exact point in space that they inhibit. Like, if you move an atomic clock from the first floor of the building to the third floor of the building, you have to recalibrate the atomic clock. Okay, you don't mean the point in space. You mean the place on Earth. No, no, I mean the point in space, because well, if you move it from the first... Well, changing. Yeah, oh. okay. It's point in space relative to Earth. Okay, there we go. Yeah. Because, uh, like, place on Earth, it, like, feels like a two-dimensional thing. Mm hmm In the same way that apparently the apple is a two-dimensional representation of the universe, but whatever. Uh, yeah, how like did... that What? <laughs> well, she's saying, like, she's saying the diameter of the apple, but, frankly, the, you know, the an apple is a fine stand-in if you're explaining wormhole theory to somebody. Yes, it is. It's... It's fine. It's perfectly cromulent. I'm pretty sure that's where it originally, like, gets its name. She fact. tells us that. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so atomic clocks have to be precisely calibrated against their point in space relative to the Earth. Seriously, like, like move them from one floor to another, you have to recalibrate. Uh -huh. So I wonder if any near uh, Cheyenne Mountain were affected. That's an interesting question. Yes. And one we will never know the answer to. 
never, ever, ever. Just... (sighs) (laughs) This episode did make me wish that uh, Rodney Rodney McKay existed in-universe already. Yeah, this would absolutely be the sort of thing they would bring him in for. Yeah. And in fact, that is what they'll they'll bring him in for later. Although, he is, like, not even slightly likable in his first couple SG-1 appearances. No, 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 no. He's, he's not supposed to be. But Yeah, that's about it for me. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, that's all I have to talk about this week. Join us again next week. We'll be talking about Season 2, Episode 17, Holiday. Thanks for listening this week. If you enjoyed this, you should also check out our other podcast, Delta Flyer. You can find and review both on the podcast player of your choice, and you can email us at StargateWeekly at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at Tyrannicus. You can find me on Twitter at Gamicus. And you can follow the show on Twitter at Stargate Weekly. And that's our show. Yeah.